We'll start there. Uh, so we, um, <laughs> we are currently in a sermon series called The Forgotten Torah. And Torah is just a very Jewish way of saying Pentateuch. And the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. And the forgotten part that we are referencing is Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy because those sections of our Bibles are, uh, they just don't get enough attention. So today, we um, have studied the five key texts in the book of Leviticus. And this morning, we are beginning in the book of Numbers. Now everyone just calm down, because I know you've been waiting forever for this sermon on Numbers. Uh, yeah, you don't get that response often. Uh, uh, honestly, we, um, I'm kidding, of course, because um, many of us just don't have a clue what the book of Numbers is. And that's kind of tragic, honestly. Uh, do you know why this is tragic? It's because Numbers is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. You didn't see that coming. Uh, in John chapter 1 in the New Testament, John records the moment uh, that Jesus called the very first disciples. He's gathering his 12, right? So Jesus finds Philip, and he says, hey, Phil, follow me. And then Philip finds Nathaniel, and guess what he says to him? In verse 45, he says, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. So whenever they reference Moses and the law, they're talking about the Torah. They're talking about the Pentateuch. He says the Torah is about Jesus. And that kind of thing is happening all over. It happens multiple times. Jesus himself will cite and quote the book of Numbers because he thinks it is super relevant. The Apostle Paul later will carry carry the same motif forward. We just saw it in our New Testament reading in 1 Corinthians 10. And he says specific, he specifically references these, these um, events in the book of Numbers. And, and, um, and he talks about how those people tested, put, they put Christ to the test. Uh, that is to say that Israel's disobedience was not just against God in some generic way. It was against Christ. And so the New Testament authors think that Jesus is the principal person in the book of Numbers. So the book of Numbers is about Jesus. But let me, um, since this is our very first sermon in Numbers, let me get a little bit more specific in this introduction on the historical context. If you'll remember, Israel was delivered from the oppression of slavery from Egypt. God marched them through the Red Sea, and they ended up on the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, From there, God's pillar of smoke and fire directed them to the very foot of Mount Sinai, And that's where they received like the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. And that's where he instructed them how to set up a tabernacle so that God's presence could dwell with his people without like incinerating them, right? Just lighting them on fire. And that's, of course, what we've been studying these last five weeks in Leviticus. So the people were there for about a year. And God says, all right, everyone, we're going on a little road trip. So follow the pillar of smoke and fire wherever it leads. And where does it lead them? Does it take them to the promised land? Well, kind of, but not exactly. God takes the scenic route. On foot, it should have taken Israel about two weeks to get to the promised land. 
but instead it takes them 40 years, all right? They're in the wilderness for 40 years. And so the book of Numbers is like a travel log for Israel's 40-year trip in the wilderness. Now, we call this book Numbers because that title comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's what we call the Septuagint. But the Hebrew name for Numbers is In the Desert. Like, that's the name of the book, In the Desert. This is about Israel's wanderings in the desert. And spoiler alert, it ain't pretty. The wilderness or the desert is a place where Israel's faith is tested. The wilderness is where Israel lived after their deliverance and salvation from Egypt, but before they received their rest and inheritance from the promised land. So in the New Testament, the wilderness often references the Christian life. It's a place where our faith is tested. We're saved, but we have not yet received our full inheritance. And so we are between those two places. And often, like Israel, our lives are not pretty either. And that's why Numbers is so relevant for modern Christians. You know, have you ever been to a church where like every Sunday a person gives their testimony of coming to Christ and then their lives are like characterized by this amazing spiritual victory and transformation? And like as you listen to their testimony, uh, you start sinking into your chair feeling totally out of place. You think to yourself, dang, my life ain't that pretty. Well, if you can relate to that, then Numbers is for you. Numbers is for you. It's real. It's raw. Israel is in the wilderness, and it's a wreck, just like our lives a lot of times. In Exodus and Leviticus, we saw the wedding service, right, where God and Israel got together, and now we're going to watch 40 years of marriage And it's not always pretty. Israel's going to need some serious marital counseling, if you know what I mean. So this morning, we're going to start at the very beginning. We're studying the prelude and the postlude of the first census taken in Israel. And this census is an occasion for us to explore the concept of life in the wilderness. So with that introduction, let's turn our attention to God's word. Please stand with me in reverence to it. If you can open your Bibles or your bulletins, it is there. This is Numbers chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, According to the number of names, every male head by head. From 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. And there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of the house of his fathers. Now verse 44. These are those who were listed, whom Moses and Aaron listed with the help of the chiefs of Israel, 12 men, each representing the father's house. So all those listed, the people of Israel, by their father's houses, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed were 603,550. 
And this concludes the reading of God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Have you, um, have you ever set out to do like a quick errand or chore? And then when you got there, you saw something else, uh, a mess or something, and it kind of derails you. So I went to my toolbox just to retrieve a screwdriver so I could install a cover plate on the light switch. Super easy, right? I opened it up, and it looked like one of those like 128 pack of Crayolas that had been poured out of the box and just a mess and shaken up. It was uh, awful, and it was bothering me. So I take an hour to organize my toolbox, which leads to another two hours of me cleaning up my garage. And after that, I, just, I took a shower and I left. I still don't have the cover plate on my light switch. So what happened? Well, I, like, I forgot what I, was, um, what I was there for. I forgot the big picture. That is just a small, silly example of what happens to us when we are in the wilderness, where life happens, we, we lose focus. The biggest and most dangerous temptation for Israel when it was in the wilderness was to forget the story, to forget the plot, right? They were saved from Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land, but they forgot what the storyline was in the wilderness. When we are in the wilderness, in those seasons of disappointment and suffering, broken dreams, pain even, we are also tempted to lose the plot. We can't see outside of our own disappointments and exhaustion. We're tempted to think that disappointment is all that there is. And when that happens, the desolation of the desert, which is out there, begins to invade our hearts. And in some ways, the book of Numbers is a story of self-destructive behaviors in Israel provoked by the wilderness. So what is it about the wilderness uh, that makes it especially hard to remember the story? A pastor in Greenville, a guy named Brian Habig, he makes the point that it is the fact that Israel is not given a timeline And more so, life in the wilderness is completely inefficient. So think about just the context with me. Um, Have you guys ever heard of Woodstock? Y'all know. All right, Woodstock. Uh, In 1969, a guy named Max Yasger allowed his 600-acre farm in New York State to be used for this music festival. And it was a gorgeous, a gorgeous farm. They expected 25,000 people. Well, 400,000 people descended on this farm to hear performers like Janis Joplin or Jimi Hendrix or the Grateful Dead. Woodstock lasted four days. Now, just think about this. 400,000 people, four days, virtually no bathrooms, no Walmart. There is like, a you can go on the internet and see this, a before and after picture of Max Yasger's farm. The farm was decimated. And this was only four days long. I mean, the people were literally like locusts who, who used the bathroom everywhere. It's totally gross. Now, now with that, think about Israel. When they escaped Egypt, they had very little, right? They had some gold in one arm, and then they had a child in the other. And then in verse 46, the census reports that there's over 600,000 men over the age of 20. And those are just the fighting men, right? 
This means that there were upwards of 2 million Israelites roaming through the desert. And we're not talking about four days. At this point, they have just finished one year at Mount Sinai. And guess what? They've got no timeline, right? They have no idea how long it would last. God did not tell them up front that it was going to be 40 years. And that leads us to the second part. The trip to the promised land should have only lasted two weeks, but they are commanded to follow the pillar of cloud and fire, and that calm is not taking them on the most efficient route. And if there's anything we hate, it is inefficiency, right? I mean, inefficiency is tantamount to sin. I always say to Amanda, baby, when you're done brushing your teeth, don't put it by the sink. Put it in, you know, put it, put it in the toothbrush holder. Don't create an extra step. Why? It's inefficient, baby. It's all funny until you're marching through the desert with eight kids and no diapers and no clue when your next meal or drink of water is going to be. My kids can't even make it in an air-conditioned car on a road trip to Mayaguez, right? Here's the point. The New Testament says that the Christian life is a life in the wilderness. Now think about it. We were rescued and saved by Jesus but we have not arrived to our home with God. We're, we're in route, but the path, the route is littered with suffering and sadness and broken hearts. And we are tempted to forget the plot, the storyline. We forgot where we're going. Now think about it like this. When you're going through a hard time, what's the most likely question that you ask God? Why? Why, God, is this happening? Suffering is so inefficient. Why doesn't God just save us and take us straight home? Why this long and sad route? I mean, he's God. He could do it. Suffering and disappointment tempts us to get cynical and forget the story. It's inefficient. And we don't know when or if it will ever end. But listen closely. The wilderness, the desert, is your life. And, 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 and if you forget that that's your, your life, what you're tempted to do when, when that spiritual wilderness comes into your heart is to give pat answers. Right? Don't give pat answers. So religious people will say, well, maybe God's just punishing me. Or or, or secular people will say, well, there is no purpose. It's all just random. Both are attempts to domesticate God and make him controllable and understandable. But if you settle for superficial pat answers, then cynicism will be birthed. And the desolation that you see in the wilderness will start breaking in. Don't forget the story. The wilderness is a mysterious place of testing. It forces you to surrender and examine your foundations. God, you are big and mysterious. I don't need answers. What I need is you. You are my foundation. See, the wilderness takes away the other things that were formerly your foundations. Right? Your health, 
your money, your dreams, your children, your education, your job. In the wilderness, all those things get attacked, even taken away. And that's the occasion of your disappointment. The wilderness exposes that, and it gives us an an occasion to move our foundations squarely onto God. And if you don't, if you don't, you will become more and more angry with God. And you will get more and more sad, and you might not bounce back. That's evidence that you forgot the plot. And the wilderness that's out there has come in here. Although there is no timeline in the wilderness, the Lord is inviting us to see that the good and the hard reside in the same space. Embrace it. Instead of turning cynical... We must stay committed to a relationship with a God that we cannot control. Follow him wherever he takes you and let him be your foundation. So let's make a transition. So if Israel's and ours primary temptation in the wilderness is to forget the story, then what resources do we have to remember the story? Now, to answer that question, we need to think about what the census in Numbers chapter 1 communicates. Now, to answer that, um, look there that, first of all, verse 2, the Lord commanded them to take a census. And I want you to think about this for a little bit, uh, uh, because it's easy to kind of just let the eyes roll back in in your head when you're reading this. Have you ever been a part of a youth trip where, like, you were a chaperone? Um, so we, like in sixth grade, my school took a group of students, sixth graders to Washington, DC. The logistics are a little bit crazy with like 15 sixth graders and like eight adults. So the group would go from location to location. And each time the students got off the bus and then they returned to that same bus. Every time the students returned, what did the chaperones do? They counted the students. If the trip starts with 50 students, it's important that the trip ends with 50 students. If they have a 98% success rate in students returning, that is really, really bad, right? So counting students is uh, it's an act of love, right? It's an act of love, right? Well, in the case of the census, when God told Moses to count the people, he's saying, count on my faithfulness. See, in the desert... People don't have plumbing, they don't have diapers, but they have God's promises. So Numbers chapter 1 stands in contrast to Exodus chapter 1. So let me quick, just really quickly summarize the history. Back in Genesis 12, God makes a promise to Abraham. Abraham was like this old guy. His wife was also old. She was sterile and fertile. God said to him, I am going to make you into a great Nation, I'm going to give you so many grandbabies, it's going to be like sand on the seashore. Well, Genesis ends with 12 great-grandsons. And you know the story. These 12 and their families moved to Egypt because of the drought. And so Exodus 1 begins by telling us that these 12 families, maybe a few hundred people at best, constitute the entirety of Israel. Over the course of the next 400 years in Egypt, they experience unprecedented growth. 
So God says, count them. Count them. 603,550 men, which represents over 2 million people when you include women and children and elderly. So what's happening here? God made a promise and says to them, go and count. See how I am faithful to fulfill my promise. Counting is God's way of making them rehearse his faithfulness. Y'all see that? So to remember the storyline in the wilderness, they had to remember God's promises. Well, there's another promise as well. What was it? It was the land. They've not received the land yet, but they knew that the land of rest was on the horizon. Remember, the story is going somewhere. Because God was faithful to his promise to Abraham, Israel could have confidence that he would be faithful to his promises that are not, even those that are not fully realized or fulfilled yet. So they're living in that space between the promise and the fulfillment. Does this make sense? Are you following this? So there's just one more resource that they have then to help them uh, to remember the story. They have God's promises, but they also have his presence. Look there in verse 1. It says that the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. Israel, now you don't know this, but Israel camped in this very specific way. The tents were always arranged in reference to the tabernacle, so they never forgot who guides them. Now think about this. I mean, for just a second. Although the boundaries of the universe itself cannot contain God, and yet in some mysterious and particular way, he dwelled with his people. God gives his people his promises, but he also gives his people himself, his presence. And this is going to get even more important later in the book of Numbers, especially when Israel totally blows it and grumble and betray God. Even still, he says, I'm not leaving you. I'm here. I'm with you. When you are grumpy, when you're doubting, when you are unfaithful, I am not leaving. I'm sticking with my people. This is a kind of enchanting love that wakes people up out of their spells and brings them back home. God is not a pushover, but oh, his love is fierce. It's unbreakable. God's not just waiting for them at the feast, at the banquet. He's in the wilderness with us. He doesn't just send us off to be tested. He accompanies us. He never abandons us. This merciful love enchants our hearts, and it reminds us of the plot, of the storyline. It is so important that you understand this about God. God's promises and his presence are the most powerful resource Christians have. And who would have thought that a census reminded us of that? In the New Testament, Jesus doesn't just count us. He says that, the New Testament says that Jesus knows every single hair on your head. Every hair is counted on your head. His care is extravagant. And his presence is even more powerful. His, his, His presence dwells inside us with his Holy Spirit. Our bodies have become living tabernacles. 
Now listen, I know, I know that your mind is listening to me right now, but your heart will forget this in the desert. Why? Because the desert is a battlefield. It's really significant that in verse 45, it tells us that it counts every man who is able to go to war organized by families. Now, I know talking about war and battles politically sensitive, but hear me out on this. Israel is going to the promised land. And that land is amazing, but it's not vacant. Rough people live there who want to take Israelite babies and sacrifice them to their gods, right? Israel, Israel would desire that when they get there, they'd be welcome. There would be a welcome party of people saying, we've heard about the signs and wonders of your God. Your God shall be our God. Your people shall be our people. In fact, we actually will see that in the Old Testament on several occasions because no one wakes up wanting to go to war. But that, that was the reality, and evil is real. But what's significant here is that the military divisions were organized by families. When and if you had to fight, you fight with your brothers. You fight with your sisters. So you see the analogy? Life in the wilderness is a battle. It's a grind. You're going to get wounded. You're going to get tricked. You're going to get seduced. You're going to grow weary, but if you fight alongside your brothers and sisters, you will always, you'll always have someone there who is watching your back, someone to bandage your wounds. And likewise, you'll be there for someone else to speak words to courage to them when the enemy surrounds. Friends in battle will remind you why we got into this war in the first place. They will remind you of the plot, of the storyline. All right, let me just finish the sermon by, just con- by reviewing very quickly. So Numbers is the travel log of Israel when they were wandering in the desert. The desert is a season of life that describes the period after they were saved from Egypt, but before they got their inheritance. In the New Testament, the authors tell us that the Christian life is a life in the desert. In the desert, the biggest temptation is to forget the plot, to forget why we are here and where we're going. We forget primarily because in our estimation, it's inefficient and because God has not given us a flow chart or a timeline. And so we grow cynical. But at the same time, God gives us a few resources in the desert that help us to remember. He gives us his promises and his presence. And when we're in this fight for survival, we do so along brothers and sisters. Now, I began this sermon by telling us that numbers is about Jesus. It is. It's not primarily about you. The Gospel of Mark actually makes this point explicit. Now listen to this carefully. If you've been wandering out, listen. In Mark, it begins, chapter 1, with Jesus passing through the baptismal waters of the Jordan. Just like Israel passed through the baptismal waters of the Red Sea. And then what happens? You know it. Jesus goes to the desert. And how long is he there? 40 days. He is in the desert for 40 days similar to how Israel is in the desert for 40 years. Israel got water and manna, and they complained. Jesus got nothing. 
No food, no water, and he did not complain. He was perfectly faithful to God. He never grumbled. He never doubted God. And why? Why is this so significant? Because where you blew it, Jesus did not. He never forgot the plot. Jesus takes a rebellion and, 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 and then he's put, he himself is put to death in the wilderness. And now God takes Jesus' faithfulness and he imputes it to you so that you and I won't die in the wilderness. Rather, we're invited to the banquet, the feast with God forever. Do you believe that? It is more true than any broken dream or broken heart in your life. It is more true than any sad thing in your life. If you dare to believe it, you can persevere in the wilderness together. Amen.